Hey, Lisa. Hey, Julie. So we're really excited to present to our listeners today two phenomenal women, Teal Burrell and Karen Howe. And um, we picked both of these women to interview because not only are they both running Boston, but they both have very interesting training trajectories, and they're both really fast. Yeah, and it was just on the heels of talking to Catherine Switzer yesterday uh, about women's running and the progression of women's running. We thought it would be really fun to highlight two women to watch who are also headed up to Boston, so have some good tips on Boston and preparing for Boston in the last week and running Boston, but also just more generally uh, their training principles, how they look at the marathon, how they look at their training. So really cool. And two very different, very different yeah. women. So the first runner we interview is Karen Howe, and Karen is from Rochester, New York. And she is a runner who started out running marathons. I think her first time was like a 337. Yep, and she brought it down most recently in her 40s. Uh, just at the Erie Marathon in September to a 310. Yeah, I don't know if it was Erie was, I think, 313 she had improved to, but then her recent PR is a 310. Okay, 310. Yeah, New York, I'm sorry, New York City New York, Marathon. Right, exactly. Yes. This, yep. And um, she most recently ran the New York City half and achieved another PR at 127. Right, and so she's going into Boston really strong. Absolutely. So we think that she's someone to watch, and we wanted to interview her. But we loved her spirit and her attitude about running, and we, we have no doubt that all of our listeners will enjoy her story as well. And uh, the second runner we interviewed is the phenomenal Teal Burrell, who used to live in the D.C. area, who um, used to be a member of the Georgetown Running Club and now lives in Richmond. And she recently set a huge PR for herself at the California International Marathon in December of 2.39. So going, um, again, qualifying for the Olympics. I think that was her second OTC time. OTQ, OTQ yeah. Time, OTQ time. And, uh, and also is, you know, has some good, big goals for Boston, even though they may not be the goals that she set out originally. I love to we'll hear about this when we talk to her, but... Um, you know, adjusting your goals yeah. based on how your training cycle goes. And regardless, she's super fast, speedy uh, runner who has also improved from a four-hour-plus marathon to qualifying for the Olympic trials. So Twice. Yes, twice. So and phenomenal. Both are moms who run, and they both have a lot of time constraints, like so many of the runners that are listening to this podcast, like everyone we know. And it's just really motivating to listen to their stories and recognize that they have the same challenges we all do, how they fit in their training, how they train smart, and most importantly, and why we really wanted to bring them on, how they deal with disappointment and setbacks. Yeah, exactly. Great inspiration as we let lead into the final week up to Boston. So we hope everyone enjoys this bonus episode as um, you head into taper. If you're not training for a marathon, we hope that this bonus episode will inspire you to set your goals a little bit higher. Absolutely. Bye, Lisa. Bye. We are so pleased to welcome Karen Howe to the podcast. Karen can be found on Instagram under the name How H-O-W-E, About a Run, where she shares her running journey. Karen is an eight-time Boston Marathoner and will be running her ninth next week. Karen is also a speedy Masters runner, where she most recently achieved a new PR of 310 at age 42 at the New York City Marathon in the fall of 2018. 
Karen will share her running journey, how she got so fast as a master's runner, and what she does to balance all of her miles along with being a full-time working mom of two. We hope that you'll learn from Karen's journey and set goals high regardless of your age. Welcome, Karen. Now to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. It's an honor. We are excited to have you. We have been following your journey on Instagram. Um, you're under the name How, H-O-W-E, about a run. And your journey is just really not only inspiring, but it's motivating. And we wanted to have you on today because we think you are a woman to watch. And we would like our listeners to hear a bit more about your story. So, Karen, talk to us and tell us, when did you start running? Oh, my gosh. First of all, thank you, because that's extremely flattering. I think when I started my Instagram account a couple of years ago, I never in a million years would have thought anyone would want to follow my run journey. But here we are, and I'm so happy to connect. Um, I guess Aww. starting with my run, I never ran in high school, didn't run in college. In fact, the only reason why I got into marathoning was back in 2006 when I was getting closer to 30. I was in my late 20s, and I decided to do the Chicago Marathon as a bucket list. And some of my friends who know me know the story um, that I actually was newlywed and signed my husband up as well, and God bless him. We both ran it together, um, finished it together, and I happened to be healthy enough and lucky enough that I qualified for Boston, and it kind of spiraled from there. I managed to forget the misery of the last, you know, 10K of a marathon and put mm -hmm. that in the back of my mind and decided marathoning was my new favorite thing. And I was just on cloud nine. And, and long story short, I've kind of done, tried to do two a year to keep myself honest, if you will, ever since. So 20 plus marathons. So what later. was your first, that's, a, and what was your first marathon time? Marathon time, it was 337. And I think the only reason why I accomplished that was because that was also back, let's say 2006. First of all, you didn't have phones to run with, or if you did, it was a flip phone. I don't even think I wore a watch. And I remember there was a time in the marathon where, you know, you're feeling really good and it's your first marathon. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to the fact that you want to like pick up the pace, but you're not really realizing that 26.2 is really far. And my husband kept telling me, no, no, we're on pace. You need to just slow down and, and Thank God he was there because he's the only reason why I qualified, I'm sure. Otherwise, I'm sure I would have blown up about mile 18. <laughs> so you, you two ran the whole thing we together? Did. We did. Oh, And you're still We're married. Still married yeah. But I will tell you this. I crossed the finish line and my sister was there. And like I said, I forgot the last six miles plus of misery. And she was all excited and high-fiving and saying, hey, are you going to do another one? And I completely had amnesia and was like, absolutely, that was the best thing I've ever done. <laughs> they turned and looked at my husband and asked the same questions. And we'll keep this family friendly, but let's do explicit. And literally kept walking <laughs> to the hotel <laughs> and hasn't done one Oh, since. that's funny. I ran one time I went after I had, I have twins that are now 13, but when, after they were born, my comeback marathon was pacing my husband through the Marine Corps marathon here in DC. And, um, he wanted to walk at about mile. I forget. It was probably mile 20. He, he yeah. wanted to walk. And I was like, you are not going to walk now. He was on pace for a huge PR and we got in this huge fight yep. on Haynes point in DC. <laughs> and I was in a position of like, well, if I leave him, I, the only, he's the only reason I'm here to run it. 
like I'm not going to finish this for myself. And if I, you know, if I walk with him, I'm going to be yelling at him. It was like this ridiculous. So yeah, we also finished with him not very happy with it's me. So so funny I, I can that. relate to that. We hit a certain point where my husband's leg was started to cramp or something. And he's like, I got to go off to the side and start stretching. I said, okay, I'll see you at the end. And he just looks at me and goes, you would leave me here? I said, listen, if I stop now, I am not going to start again. And so Exactly. That's, it's tricky. That's tricky navigating a marathon together as a couple. So I'm I'm impressed. That's, that's awesome. So you ran your first marathon in a fast time for someone who's really never ran. Did you know that you had that kind of speed in you when you, when you started running? No. And honestly, I think I've run my best marathons when I don't put the emphasis on the finish time. Um, I let that all up to my husband's super good at logistics. And so he kind of through our training was like, you know, you just might be close to a qualifying time. And, and again, Boston, I mean, correct me if you guys have a different understanding, but Boston was not as big of a deal in my mind back in 2006 no. as it is now. I mean, the insane pressure that people put on themselves, I, I feel like it almost hinders people from their performance. So by not putting that time on the end, I think that probably helped me. That's absolutely right. I, I, my first Boston was in 2001. And I always tell people the story, like I qualified in Marine Corps just a few months before Boston and I didn't register for Boston until first of all, I didn't even know at the time what it meant to qualify for Boston. I didn't even know what Boston was, but I registered maybe a couple months before when I saw that I was ready to to run another marathon and I, we didn't have to book a hotel in advance. So you're right. This is just in the last, probably, especially since uh, 2013, probably, become um more of a like a, a, a goal for and, and like you said sort of a, a, a this this goal that everyone gets in their head and sometimes an arbitrary pressure uh that it puts on getting a certain goal time so that's a really interesting observation you know why I think it is also it's because they switched why? from cotton shirts to dry fit I mean <laughs> <laughs> right was your first shirt was your first shirt one of the unisex cotton oh, yeah. sleeve shirts yep. also yeah me too I've got a bunch of them in my closet <laughs> I can't give away but I can't wear them either. yeah I'm going to come Marie Kondo your house. Yeah. You don't need those. No. Oh, I love them. They bring me joy. They bring me joy. So I have to hold on to them. So, so talk to us. So you, you had a great first marathon, qualified for Boston. What has been your trajectory since then? We know your statistics. You've run, um, is it 21 marathons? I actually looked that up just now before this call. 23. This will be my 24th. Woo. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And you've run Boston eight times. Yep. This will be your ninth. Give us some highlights. Like what happened between that 337 and, and tell everyone what your PR is now. Sure. Um, I'd have to say that. So I started my first marathon was in my late twenties um, and then have kind of stuck to the one in the spring, one in the fall uh, every year since um, some years I did snuck another one in, but rarely. Um, and I really think that through my thirties, I kept the pressure off. I ran, um, you know, I was having my kids, in 2009 and 2011 so when I was in my 30s I really feel like I didn't do any speed work I would print out you know an online free program I've never had a coach until this last year Um, and I just ran Um, and it was really no pressure I wasn't on Instagram or the social media where I feel like there's a lot of pressure on people Um, yeah it was really all that I could do so I mean I I thought about it a little bit because people keep asking me as they see my numbers now Um, and they're, you know, wow, you're getting fast and you're in your forties. Maybe there's hope. I I would say, take the pressure off if you can. I know it's easy for me to say, because I've lived through it, 
But in your 20s, let's say your early 20s, you're just graduating college, you, you know, maybe starting a career, still having fun with your college friends, trying to figure things out. Maybe you get married. Um, me, I was like burning the midnight oil towards the, the later 20s, just fo totally focused on my career. No, no time for any of this, um, you know, running faster stuff. It was more of the bucket list. Then I entered my 30s and it did what a lot of people do is you're engrossed in your career and quite honestly, my babies. So running became really my outlet as far as I'm a better mom when I get that time to run. But to add on another pressure of running for really fast times, I don't think I would have been able to handle it at that time, um, which maybe that's why I'm getting faster as I get older. You know, my kids are seven and 10 now. Um, and I finally, you know, they're a little more self-sufficient. Like, yeah, I have to, I'm kind of like an Uber because we're taking them to all these sports and lacrosse Preach. fields. Yeah. <laughs> How much time we spend in the car. Oh my gosh, it's so true. But there's also this level of, maybe when you get to your 40s, for me anyways, I've kind of started to master the art of not giving up bleep, you know? Yep. Where yep. in your 20s and 30s, you're either trying to prove yourself in your career or your 30s, you're raising these you know, kids possibly, or still pushing through your career. Um, now it's kind of my time. And I've been able to, nothing in my 30s was anything stellar. I've just been very fortunate to run a steady state and stay healthy, which is a large part of it too. Um, and then I just started when I hit 40, I happened to have just a breakthrough because I had a couple friends around me who were kind of pushing saying, you know, if you can run steady state for a such and such time if you did a little bit of work and maybe some varied your recovery runs your speed runs you could probably get faster and that all of a sudden I ran the Erie Marathon in 2000 fall of 2017 and I went from a personal best of 321 down to running a 313 and it was a day that it wasn't even supposed to be a, a goal marathon and I thought holy smokes I'm like maybe these people have something some truth behind this varied speed stuff. So that's when I thought, okay, well, I started to do a little bit before Boston 2018 um, and working on building the base and some more miles. And then we all know how that weather turned out. Yeah, it was, uh -huh. wasn't the race. And so a month or two after that, I actually reached out to James McCurdy from McCurdy Trained and just started mm -hmm. talking. So I'm like, you know, I also had this naive approach that I'm like, I don't need a coach. That's for like fast people. And so I think I've just never really taken a step back and looked at myself from the outside to say, well, if I can do this. If I put a little work into it, I can. And that's where the point that I've reached now is, okay, you know, I'm going to put the work in and just see where it goes. I don't, I'm not planning on going to the Olympics by any stretch of the means, but Hey, if I can keep improving my fitness and see where it goes, I love it. I'm going to keep, keep trying. Yeah, and it keeps you motivated. We love your story in that you kept yourself healthy, but you used running as an outlet, and then you started varying your paces. So tell our listeners, because um, this is really important, what is your um, easy pace compared to your marathon pace? I feel very proud to say that I actually know the difference, first of all. Mm -hmm. um, in that one, at, when I first started with the varying speeds, I didn't know what that easy meant. And at first I thought, oh, how could I possibly get faster if I'm running an 8.30 to 9.30 pace. And so it was a little bit of a ego check for me. Um, but mm -hmm. that's probably my easy pace now is I really like to be between 8 minute 30 and close to 9 minutes for those easier runs versus 
yeah. my speed stuff is kind of all over the place. My, I, my personal best marathon was a, a 310 this past fall at New York. So um, that's what, like a 715 pace, 710 pace, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So your, your marathon pace that you practice with or your tempo pace, generally speaking, is somewhere hovering between a seven on some days to a seven fifteen seven twenty, let's say, and your LSD pace is somewhere between eight thirty and nine. Yeah, about right. Yep. Definitely. Okay, so everyone listening out there, that's a full two minutes. Yeah. Yeah, and that's like you said, that's an ego check for a lot, and a lot of our runners have that challenge, that same challenge that you do, and that we always did until we started coaching and and seeing it for ourselves in our own training that. Um, that you really can't run those long runs too slowly if you're if you're listening to your body. I cannot um, emphasize that enough, and I actually am happy to say that I'm getting stronger too. So this past uh, couple weeks ago, I did New York half as a, a kind of a tune up and just to see where my fitness is because you know I ha- it hasn't even been a year of working with a coach, so you know every little step is kind of new and a little foreign, and sometimes doesn't feel good, and sometimes it does, and it all came together, and I ended up running a 127 half marathon. So. <sighs> Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, it, was, it was just so a that, day. <laughs> you never know. That's a great day. And that's also a new course this year where it ends. It's it's a little bit yeah. hillier from what I understand than in past years. So that's fantastic. And we also love, of course, because we are coaches that you have found such joy and um, seeing, results. seeing results from working with a coach. So that's really, that's really terrific. It sounds like you listen to your coach too. I do. And I can't emphasize enough if I was to dole out some unsolicited advice is find a coach, find a coach, you know, everybody deserves to have a coach and just find that right connection. Um, Because for me, when I signed up for one, I really wanted someone just to tell me what to do. They took that work out of it for me. And it's just a really good partnership. If you find the right coach, um, they can really help you and they'll listen to you and vice versa. Right. And so, and you're achieving these PRs and, and big PRs. That's like a significant PR um, in your forties. So, you know, as we're getting to be masters runners um, and you're changing your, your training, you're obviously, you know, increasing some of the intensity and, and probably some of the mileage. How, what are you doing for injury prevention? How do you stay healthy? Um, I have to say I'm not the best in this and I'm trying to get better <laughs> because I like to heavily time, right? <laughs> time. <laughs> I, I like to heavily rely on my deep tissue massages on a regular basis. But honestly, I think in my forties, I keep you know we're hovering on this as uh, an athlete and as a runner. No matter what your age is, you're always kind of hovering on. Does that hurt because it's um you know could possibly be an injury? Or now that I'm in my forties, I'm like, or is this it? I keep waiting for this monumental like, yep, that's it. Yep, it's it's crumbling. The, the body's failing on me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we know that feeling. So it's more than anything, being a mom, I have a full-time career. It's blocking out the time. I have to block out a little extra time when I get my run done to do um, just some different dynamic stretches and things like the rolling really helps. Um, but it's, it's all on me. I need to be better at it. And it, those days that I don't carve out the time and I'm cutting myself too short is is the days that I pay for it because that's when you really feel it. And I know when I'm being bad because my body certainly screams about it. And how do you, um, how are you with your sleep? Do you feel like you're getting a little more sleep now that you're being coached because your coach is emphasizing it or um, is that a challenge for you at all? It's definitely a challenge um, just with everything that goes on with real life. 
I tell them my husband was teasing me last night. He's like, well, since you went to bed at five o'clock last night, you kind of missed out on X, Y, and Z. But lately, like when I'm in the peak of marathon training, I try to go to bed because my, all of my, I should back up and say, all of my runs are done primarily in the morning. Because if I don't do them before work, oh yeah, there's just no way. There's too many things going on. Um, so I try to go to bed as early as I can, like get to bed, try nine, nine thirty, because I'm up by a little bit before five o'clock. Um, mm-hmm. But sometimes that just doesn't happen. And sometimes you, you have weeks where you're just tired. And I know I really listen to my body and know that when when I'm just needed to catch up on sleep. I love naps when when it's a you know weekend where I have the luxury of being able to take one. Um, and I try to, but it's always a struggle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we wanted to ask you because you are someone that seems very mentally fit in the words of Matt Fitzgerald. You seem like someone who you race consistently well, but you've had some times that aren't always linear. Um, talk to us and tell us what is your secret to setting your goals and having the mental fitness to believe in yourself and achieve them? That's a really great question. I don't know the answer to it. I think by and large, just I've always been a very hard worker. I'm probably my worst critic, um, which is good and bad. I think part of that is because I'm so hard on myself, I won't give up on my goals. So like when the mind starts to give out, I'm stubborn enough to kind of fight through some things that maybe other people wouldn't. Um, But on the flip side, I run my best when I do try to take those pressures off. So it may appear like it's mental strength, um, but I have the same anxieties, the same fears when, when you're about to toe the line on any given race, especially with social media, because you've put yourself out there. So people see your whole training log and they have certain expectations of you. Um, and it's easy to look at that and think that they would judge you maybe or something for those times, achieving those times are not. Um, but trying to kind of put those in the back burner is the way that I can get through that and try to do the best that I can is I, telling myself, I have to almost repeat it out loud that no one cares as much about my running as I do. And that just seems to help get me through some of those tough moments and surround yourself by positive people. Those people who lift you up and are there, kind of your sounding board to emphasize, look, you've done the work. You are strong enough. You can do this. Um, so just that's the only thing I'd have to say because I don't, I don't know what makes mental strength. Just keep plugging away. Yeah. It sounds like you're someone who really enjoys the process as well, which is key and not just focusing on the results. I think I actually like the training and the grind more than I do the race because I feel like some of those races – Maybe because I'm, I'm used to just, I've always thought of marathons, not as races, but as just endurance events. Whereas you get into some of these that all of a sudden there's these paces that you see that you've never seen before. And it just gives me, oh, you know, that those butterflies yeah. in your stomach. And you're like, I don't know. I don't know. Is it really going to happen? Um, so it's, it's kind of funny that way. And it does somehow on race day magic usually kicks in as long as the weather cooperates. Like you said, you know, that one day can be subject to so many different variables. You don't know what's going to happen that day. So really the process itself is, is, is what we always look at as the victory getting through the the training is the hard part. The, The race is sort of the, 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 the reward at the end. So we have to ask, as you mentioned it a couple of times, you have a really, um, terrific Instagram account that you keep up and which is, 
which is really impressive given that you do have a lot of things on your plate, including being a full-time working mom. What is it that, um, what is your motivation for maintaining uh, such a prolific social media account? And how do you deal with that? Because we, we both are on social media as coaches and we both, of course, chronicle our training a little bit, but we, we, we don't do that, but we, we admire people who do, but we just, we can't, we feel like it's hard for us for all the reasons you said. Sometimes I don't want to put my training out there every day. For example, I don't want to speak for you, Lisa, but I don't know. It's just one of those things that we haven't particularly caught on to ourselves for our own training, the way you and so many others have. And in doing so, you inspire a lot of runners. So talk to us and tell us what got you started on that specific journey and how you feel about it. Uh, that's such a great question. And I think it's one of those that it's kind of like my running. Um, I'm able, I firmly believe to run stronger now and longer because I didn't run in high school. I didn't run in college. So I don't have that level of mileage already on my legs. So it's almost similar to the, the Instagram that that's newer to me. I didn't jump on that until a couple of years ago. And so just the newness of it, it was kind of exciting to all of a sudden you're reaching all of these people, similar to like reaching and connecting with you guys. Like we've both run the Boston Marathon now so many times and yet our paths have never crossed before. Um, and I can tell that we would be great friends. So all of a sudden with Instagram, that's kind of the motivators. I'm starting to connect with a lot of these people out there who have similar aspirations, similar goals. You know, you're there for that support network of positivity um, and being able to meet some of these people in real life, as cheesy as that may sound, has really been kind of fun. But on the flip side, I can say that now after having been on there for a couple of years and almost going to the extreme of so many posts, it's getting to like Instagram fatigue. I'm finding myself going, okay, it's dark. It's five in the morning. No one wants to see a picture of me running my <laughs> nine minute pace. Like, I don't have anything inspirational to say. So you might see me pair it back a little bit just to kind of like the newness has started to wear off. And I still want to keep, um, if I can motivate anyone, I mean, that's so flattering to say. Um, but I guess if I can still do that and do it a little bit less, you'll probably see that because it's so hard. For me to <laughs> it's tiring. Oh well, that's God. why I say too, is like, I don't know if I have, if I remember to take the pictures yeah. and then post them. It's like a lot of time. Okay. So can we ask you another question about it? We just, we, we want to know how to, how do you take such good pictures of yourself? <laughs> Secrets revealed on the podcast. Yes. Um, yeah. The key every, to, is, uh, <laughs> I'm laughing because this actually took me a little while to figure out. And I have some of my younger friends who have kind of helped me through that piece. <laughs> okay. So you're our younger friend because we're a little older than you by like a year yeah, or there two. You go. So, or in my case, four. Okay. So a self timer is your friend. Okay. And on some of the tricky ones, you can actually take a video and then go back and take a picture oh. of the video. I mean, oh, the bulging yeah. secrets. I mean, this is okay. This is that is. We always look at them and say, "How did they get that?" Like, there's a picture of you running in the snow at some point. Yeah. I'm like, "How did she get that angle? Like, did she prop it in the snow?" And like, "How did that?" Is somebody on the ground? Like, <laughs> I, I, and it's a great picture. And I'm always like, "How?" And there's other times And it's, then there's other times really... when you have zero shame and you just say, "Hey, can you take a picture of me for this?" Okay, <laughs> right. got it. Okay. That makes sense. That's well, thanks great. for revealing your secrets know, to us. There's plenty more. Um, <laughs> so moving on to Boston, because you are a veteran Boston marathoner, um, could 
you provide some of your personal tips for our listeners this week, what they should focus on in this last week leading up to the race? I would love to. One of the first things, it's not the weekend leading up to it, but when you get to Athletes Village, don't be fooled. You still have to walk almost a mile from Athletes Village to your yes. starting home. No one tells you that. <laughs> so my advice That's great. Is, You're right. That's not that is not something that you're yeah. right. That's exactly. It's a great piece of advice. No one ever ta- talks about that. So save your legs. It's super exciting because they have the music pumping. There's thousands of people there. But find a piece underneath the tent so you're away from either the sun or the rain or just whatever. Um, and kind of camp out. Time yourself for the porta potties. The other thing, too, is once you walk. Right before the corrals is a lifesaver, and usually there's not much lines. So I'd say don't, you know, when they call for your corral, you don't have to elbow people, but certainly kind of make your way up there. It's beneficial to make your way to the start because it's a long walk. You might want to use the porta potties again, um, and and don't waste energy walking around high fiving everybody at Athletes Village. <laughs> that's, that's great. That's and the porta potty one, the porta potty advice is one that we do give. Um, we, we do give runners a lot. That not yeah. a lot of people realize that there are is a huge bank of porta potties right near yeah. the start. So if you can get down there quickly, you can get in a line there and use that as your last porta potty. So that's a yeah. good, good piece of advice as well. What about what about race day? Like what about race strategy? Have you learned anything over your years of of running Boston that that you think is really important for people to know? Yeah, I think that. Um, I personally don't love flat courses, so I really like Boston in that it does have variation, but all the things that the previous guests have mentioned, you know, the obvious one is the downhill start. You're going to be excited. You're going to go out too fast. Try not to. Try to be controlled. I would carry a disposable, like, water bottle so that you don't get jammed up in the water stations, but you can still stay hydrated. And the other one that no one seems to talk about, but when you mention it, people who have run it before go, ah, you're right, is the first hill is not the, at least to me, the hardest hill is not Heartbreak Hill. It's that one that goes about mile 16 that takes you over the overpass. Uh-huh. I never <laughs> see that coming every single year. And, and it's kind of a dead spot. There's not as many um cheerleaders out there's there. nobody around there yeah nobody goes on that overpass. i believe that's where i had my meltdown oh, yes, last year yeah, yeah that's a good yeah, spot for a meltdown you, are, you aha you're right that is that is the top because you're right you don't ex, you don't expect that yeah. you're looking forward to the heartbreak you know the hills and yeah. newton but that hill there is it is that's pretty heart, i i agree I with you heartbreak yes of course you're going to slow your pace don't panic about that because you know what goes up must come down so work the downs and then let the energy carry you. To, from my perspective, I know that my adrenaline, even though it feels like my legs are cement, um, my adrenaline starts to like, I get excited. I'm like, okay, this is kind of the home stretch. You may get a glimpse of the Sitco sign, which gets me excited. And the best is when you see that Boston strong over the underpass in the last couple miles mm-hmm. or so miles. That banner. Past that banner. And then you see the blue tangent stripe on the road. Follow that. And I know there's a teeny little climb before you get to that to ride on hair. You are seriously in the home stretch because when you take that left onto Boylston, I mean, I you feel like such an amazing superstar. I don't care if you have to crawl to the finish. You will feel like a movie star with the sheer loudness of the crowds. And it's just no better feeling. 
it just pushes you through, through the finish. It is, that's, it is, it is remarkable. Well, that is, we are so excited. And like you said, we, we feel like we're friends. We feel like you would be our friend (laughs) if you lived here. And um, I know we're all going to be in Boston together. So we're going to hopefully make plans to meet up and say hello. Absolutely. um, when we're up there for a marathon weekend. So thank you so much for spending time talking with us today. And we are sure that all of our listeners are going to be, be able to relate to what you're talking about. That's, that's number one is that you're totally relatable and, and it's inspiring to see the progress that you've made oh, even you. as we've all gotten older. Yes. And sometimes people think, well, you know, our, our fastest days are behind us, but clearly not. So, and it seems like you're doing, you're, you're, you're so smart about it. You're smart and you're practical and you have a really great, um, great outlook on, on marathoning and racing and, and training. So um, it's been so much fun to talk to you and uh, we can't wait to see you in Boston and we're all hoping for a great year this year and uh, you know, not a repeat of yes, last year's weather. Yes. We were deserving. We're deserving of a great weather year. No I think kidding. finally this year. Thank you guys so. so much for having me on. And I will tell you that if I can motivate even one person, that's a huge win for me because that in itself helps me um and not every day is perfect it's just not that's just life so if I could help anybody I'd love to do it and I really can't wait to meet up with you guys and I just wish everybody an awesome run whether that's Boston now Boston in the future or some other race thanks Karen and if anyone wants to find Karen they can find you on Instagram on how about a run and um we look forward to meeting you best of luck thank you so much Thanks. Bye-bye. We are excited to welcome to the podcast, Teal Burrell. Teal is an elite marathoner. She is unique because she was able to whittle down her marathon time from a 4.07 to an Olympic trials qualifying time of 2.39, most recently at the California International Marathon. Teal is a mom of one, and she trains in Richmond, Virginia with the Wazelle Haute Valley team. We hope that Teal's trajectory will help you set your goals high and stay motivated even during those harder races. Welcome to the podcast, Teal. Teal Burrell, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. We are so excited to have you on. We initially heard about your story, like so many others, um, when you spoke to a group of runners at a running store in D.C. What's the name of the store where you spoke? So the store is Summit to Summit. Soul in downtown. Okay, Summit to Soul. Summit to Soul. So those who live in the D.C. area, that's a great local business to check out. And Teal spoke there. And all of a sudden, we saw just a bunch of Instagram posts about Teal's inspirational speech and story. And so then we started looking around and, and we realized that your story is just incredible. And we are so thrilled that you have taken the time to come on our podcast today so we can share it with our listeners. Oh, yeah. Thank sure. you. Sure. So first of all, Teal, talk to us and tell us, um, when did you start running? Yeah, so I started in high school. Um, I initially thought it was the most boring sport um, in the world. My older brother and older sister both ran and I would get dragged to their cross country meets. Um, when I was in middle school, I thought it was really lame. But then for somehow, somehow, my sister convinced me to try it in high school. And I loved it. I mean, mostly just as a a way to have friends and um, be part of something. But um, I just I fell in love with running um, in high school. 
And, um, but then I wasn't, I wasn't all that great. So I didn't like run collegiately or anything like that. And you started, but you ran casually in college, obviously, because tell our listeners what you did in college. Yeah. So I sort of ran casually. I would like, you know, start running, like get inspired to run a little bit, get back in shape. And then, you know, that wouldn't last. So I realized that, um, as much as I love running, like I don't do it unless I have a big goal on the horizon. So I decided that I wanted to run a marathon um, in college. I'd never raced anything farther than a 5k, but I knew that, you know, having this like crazy goal that you really need to train for would get me into running again. Um, And so my sophomore year of college, I ran my first marathon. And what marathon was that? That was the Charlottesville marathon, which is crazy hilly. Hard first marathon. Not recommended as a first marathon. So hard. And how did you train for that marathon? I mean, when you're in college, like, how did you train? Did you have a coach? Did you do it on your own? How did you fit it in with classes? How did you train? I mean, that's a hard thing for a college student to to decide to conquer. Yeah. um, I didn't have a coach or anything. I just, like, read, um, you know, some training plans and books and things like that and, like, online. Um, and basically I would just, I was very dedicated to doing the weekend long run and I would, you know, I knew that I had to get that in, um, and build my mileage that way in order to finish 26.2 miles. Um, the rest of the week, you know, I would, I would have, you know, shorter runs throughout the week. And a lot of times those would get skipped because I was too tired or whatever. Um, but I, I stayed, I trained pretty well for it and definitely like did all the long runs. I didn't do like a lot of speed work or anything like that. I just wanted to like complete the distance. And what was your finishing time? It was four hours and seven minutes. Wow. So after that, did you start doing marathons regularly or did you take a break after that? I took a break again. I was like, cool. I, you know, I did the marathon. Yeah. I'm back into running. And then immediately like stopped running again because I had no second goal on the horizon. Um, so I didn't, again, it, I just ran in like spurts throughout the rest of college, um, was never really motivated enough to keep it going until I graduated. And then I had, you know, like a regular nine to five job and I was actually living in Boston. Um, and so then I thought, okay, I want to get back into marathon and get another big goal. Um, and I want to try to qualify for the Boston marathon. Um, so you went from being a so- 407 marathoner to, I want to qualify for Boston. So you must have had some idea yeah. that you had the potential to be faster than 407. I did think I, I could be faster than 407. I didn't necessarily think, I definitely didn't think it was going to happen as quickly as it did. Um, I thought it would take me a couple tries and, but I knew, like, I knew that I needed some big, maybe unachievable goal, but something to get me running again. And so I thought that Boston was going to be, you know, this goal that would like keep me at it for, for years. We love that because that's typical for a lot of runners to say, I want, you actually sought what you perceived as an unachievable goal so that you would stay consistent with running versus an achievable goal, a safe goal. That's very cool. Yeah. And I mean, I should say that I did think it was not necessarily unachievable, but like it would take me a long time to get there. I did think that I could get there. Um, but I, I knew it could take a couple tries. And, and I think in the back of my mind, I also knew that even if I never did, I would get better along the way. But I did also think like that I could. Right, a challenging but achievable goal. It wasn't, it wasn't out of the realm of of possibilities. Let me ask you this before we we move on to more about your running career, just a side note. Do you think that your thought process might be a little bit influenced by the fact that you are a neuroscientist and, and maybe sort of you think of things as maybe a little bit more database where, you know, instead of emotional or, or am I off base there? 
Uh, that's a great question. Um, I don't know, because I definitely like when I'm thinking about my goals, even now, like I definitely like look, look to the data, like look at my workouts and where I'm at and like, try to find, you know, how the data can fit with my goals and stuff like that. But at the same time, I'm also a very emotional person. So (laughs) I think that sometimes I, you know, sometimes it's emotion based. So I wouldn't necessarily say that it's all like, because of my neuroscience background. Got it. That first marathon in over four hours, uh, you had a goal of qualifying then for Boston. And eventually, you hit the Olympics, Olympic trial qualifying time. How, how did you make that progression from four hours to Boston qualifying to for the Olympic trials? Yeah, so um, like I said, I kind of thought that Boston would be like a reach goal and would, would be harder to achieve than it ended up being for me. Actually, I ended up qualifying for Boston in my, in my second marathon. Um, and so that was super exciting and I was pumped about that. But again, I had this thought like, okay, well what now? And actually, I guess up until that point, I had thought like, I'm going to run a marathon, check that off the bucket list. Then I'm going to qualify and run Boston, check that off the bucket list. And maybe like, that'll be it. But in running that, um, Boston marathon, my first Boston marathon in 2009 and training for that, I realized like, no, I want to keep doing this for as long as possible. I love this marathoning thing. So then I thought, okay, I need another really big goal. Like this time it needs to, you know, be less achievable and more of a big goal than I'm going to work to for a while. And that's when I came up with the, um, idea of qualifying for the Olympic trials, um, marathon. And, um, so at that time I was, um, my marathon PR, uh, was from my third marathon was 318. And so then I wanted to kind of just chip away at the standard, which, um, has changed over the years, but right now it's 245. Um, and so it was just kind of setting another really high goal that would like get me out of bed in the morning and get me training and doing this thing that I love, um, for a long time that I could kind of chip away. How did you do that? Did you, what did you, what changes did you make to your training to, to, to see that progression. I mean, obviously you probably didn't do the same thing you had done when you were in college for your first marathon. So what did you, what did you change over the years? Yeah. So, um, basically I just, um, I, in the past I've always referred to it as like chiseling away at, at different aspects of things. So I never like did make like huge changes to anything. I just slowly got, you know, um, slowly built up mileage, slowly added in like more and more speed workouts, harder workouts, just kind of as I progressed, um, I joined a team when I lived in DC, the Georgetown running club and, uh, ran with them and did harder workouts with them. And, um, also at the same time, I just like slowly, you know, tried to get better about nutrition and sleep and, you know, things like core and strength, but it wasn't like one day I just woke up and was like, okay, I'm going to go run from running 30 miles to 80 miles a week. And I'm going to like, you know, overhaul my diet plan or whatever. Like it was very gradual the whole way through, like, I'm just going to try to do things a little bit better um, and try to, you know, go from 318 to 315 and then 310 and then, you know, slowly kind of progress along. And so how many marathons did it take you to go from becoming a Boston qualifier to an Olympic trials qualifier? So I qualified for Boston in my second marathon and I qualified for the trials in my 12th. Okay. So for those of for our listeners who have big goals, that's, that's quite a substantial amount of time and running that you dedicated to chiseling, in your words, your goal. 
Yeah. And that is a true testament to your dedication because we are in a society a lot where we just want things to happen fast. We, we want immediate gratification. And what, did you ever have moments when you wanted to give up or how did you keep your eye on the prize and, and keep that goal in your sight when maybe it seemed like it still was far away? Oh goodness. I definitely had moments where I wanted to give up and I was like, why am I doing this? Maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. Maybe this goal is really ridiculous. Um, but I also like in those moments, I was also like, but I love this. I want to keep doing it. And I, um, and I really felt like, um, you know, I believe in God and I really felt like he had given me this goal and given me this like purpose to keep running and keep striving and keep trying to, you know, make this huge progression and share it with others. You know, I started a blog I, now on Instagram. Yes. The um, trying blog to inspire is miles to the trials. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, and so I just felt like there was a reason that like this goal was in my mind. And so I had to kind of keep going and hopefully like it would be an inspiring story that I could share with others and, and just help people to see um, that we have a lot more potential than, than we think. And oftentimes, you know, we have these moments, these races where we think, oh gosh, you know, that really sucked. And I didn't do anything like I, I didn't run nearly as fast as I wanted to. Um, but those are just kind of blips and you have to keep going and know that the training is behind you. Um, and I will say that uh, two of my very worst races where I didn't PR and was far off what I had hoped to do on those mm -hmm. days were followed by two of my biggest breakthroughs. Wow. Um, because I because a, I knew that the training was still there. So even if race day is hot or like Boston last year, where it was totally miserable yeah. and you can't, sh you know, you don't have a, a time to show for all the work you've put in your body has still like reaped all those benefits and is still much stronger. And so the next time you go out, like you will be at a different starting place than you were, you know, before you started that cycle, uh, that training cycle. And so I knew that. And then the second thing is that I think after a bad day, you know, I get, I get pretty mad <laughs> that I had a bad mm -hmm. day and I kind of sulked for a while. And so then the next season I'm like, well, I don't want to be in that same spot again. Like I don't want to put all this work in and not get it. And so you, you come kind of ready to fight a little bit harder. And so I think that really helped me in both times that I had these really bad days and I was thinking, why am I doing this? Like, maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. Like there's another part of me that's like, no, I am. And I'm going to show it next time. Um, that's one that fighting spirit. That's amazing. Your fighting spirit. And what, what, I think you're also saying is you, you also aren't one of those people that jumps into another marathon two weeks later because you had a bad race, but you actually recover and then take on a new training cycle with a new goal rather than trying to achieve the same goal in the same cycle. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. I never do more than two marathons a year. I either do like one or two a year. Um, and I give myself the time off and the time to rebuild and it's annoying. It's frustrating. That's the thing about the marathon. Like, you know, it's not a 5k. You can't do one every week. I mean, people do do them every weekend, but if you're going for PRs and going for these big goals, you can't expect to, to hit those every weekend. So it's frustrating and, um, it's just kind of the nature of it, but you have to, you have to give your um, body the, the break it needs and, um, start building again. Absolutely. Speaking of giving your body a break and, and, um, and taking those down times, um, what do you do for recovery? Like, what is your, what's your recovery strategy um, from both during training and then after your marathons? Are there any particular strategies you, you adhere to? So after a marathon, I take two weeks completely off. 
Um, I don't cross train or anything. Like maybe I'll, you know, go for a walk or something, but um, I just take two weeks completely off. I've done that for a long time. Um, and then I sort of go for a short run and see how things feel. And if I feel okay, you know, I might go for a short run like two days later again, and just kind of keep feeling it out um, and then kind of build up from there. Um, and then in terms of uh, more day to day, um, I take one day off every week, which is uh, a little weird at my level. I think I, I don't run as much mileage as I think some of the people I compete against do. Um, but I just know from injuries and, and my history, what I can handle. So I still take one day off every week and, um, I roll, um, I use roll, um, the roll recovery, um, what's it called? The sugar point. No, the, <laughs> yeah, I, no. foam roller, foam roller. I use a foam roller, yeah. but I also use that like roll recovery R8 thing. I think oh, okay. Called, something like that. Um, I do that every day. Um, I do yoga. Uh, I try to sleep. I mean, I think those are the big, the big things. Um, you know, I, I think I've heard a lot of like physiologists and coaches talking about, um, you know, what you can do to recover. And there's so many things you can buy and, you know, these crazy Normatec leg sleeves and mm -hmm. ice baths and like, really like you just need to sleep yep, <laughs> um, yeah. and take care of yourself and rest between big efforts and um, just kind of do those, those boring things. First yeah, and foremost. That's consistent. We, we interviewed earlier in our podcast series, Christy Ashwinden, who wrote good to go a book that was just released recently. And that's basically the conclusion of her book is that all this other stuff is, you know, it can't hurt. Uh, and if it helps, maybe it's a placebo effect, then you can keep doing it. But really what is most important is that rest and sleep. So I yeah. think that's really important. How, so you, you have, you have one child. Yeah. I um, have a daughter who just turned two. Oh my gosh. So young child, you're in the thick of the, the, the young stages. And so sleep and time management is, is a challenge. How have you, you've obviously had to transition to that in the midst of your running career because you were running before she was born, but how have you changed your training and um, kind of your approach to running since becoming a mom? Um, I don't think it's changed that much. So I still run, you know, first thing in the morning uh, before she wakes up, my husband watches her while I, while I run. Um, so I'm still kind of like, you know, I, right now I'm a stay at home mom and I just work part time. But it's still kind of like how it was before when I had like a full-time job, you know, I have to be back at such and such a time and, and get ready to start the day. So it's oh, you still, still have a full-time job now. <laughs> you still yeah. you have a full-time job and a part-time oh. job. <laughs> so, you're yeah. Right. yeah. Even more so. Um, yeah. But so the training hasn't really changed that much. I mean, obviously the big thing was just like the pregnancy and coming back from that um, and just taking care of myself through that time. But um, the training hasn't really changed that much. Um, to be honest. And then it's just kind of um, getting everything in as, as early as I can before I kind of come back and do the mom stuff. And so there's a lot more like things are rushed in the morning and I'm, you know, drinking a smoothie and eating a muffin as I run out the door or whatever. But, um, um, you know, I do still try to prioritize. And what's your, for running. what's your average weekly mile mileage right now? You're training for Boston. I know you're in taper, but what generally is your weekly mileage in a marathon cycle? So I'll average about 70 miles a week. So, um, I'll have a couple weeks at like 80 something, but, um, not much. So okay. that's kind of low for, um, for my level. 
Yes, but it takes time. So you're getting up really early to be mm-hmm. back in time. And mm-hmm. so there, therefore, you're obviously going to bed early mm-hmm. and trying to get that sleep. And, and we know you're, you're a member of the Wazelle Haute Volley uh, team. Do you run with um, the group there in Richmond or do you run on your own? So I usually run on my own. Um, there are some, some Richmond Volley members out here when we meet for like brunch and a book club and stuff like that. But um, we kind of all have different schedules. And um, the awesome thing about the Wazelle team is that it has people from all different paces and distances and stuff. So we kind of meet for social aspects, but um, run, I basically run on my own um, because I have to, I have to, to fit it into my schedule. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we also wanted to ask you before we have some specific questions about your Boston training, you ran um, a huge PR in December at CIM, a CIM marathon in California, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's amazing because you did that post baby and you re-qualified for the Olympic trials. Can you tell everyone your time? Yeah, so my time um, from CIM was 2.39.08. That's a big PR. Tell us how many minutes faster did you run that than your first OTQ? Um, a little over three minutes. That's yeah. significant. What did you do for that race, you think, that, that gave you that edge, um, other than the course being CIM versus Pittsburgh? But what, what did you do differently, do you think, that led you to that place where you got sub 240? Um, oh, so I, yeah, so I ran Pittsburgh last spring. Sorry. So it was more than four minutes faster than I had run in Pittsburgh. Um, wow. But um, yeah, I mean, the course, <laughs> the course is a lot better. That's for sure. Um, but I think it was also just um, coming back from, so I had my daughter in March of 2017. And then um, basically was just trying to get back to the level I had been at before I had her. Um, again, very slowly and progressively. So uh, I qualified for the trials first last spring in Pittsburgh, but I knew that I wasn't like, I still wasn't far away enough from the pregnancy to be at my full 100% level. And so Mm -hmm. it was just really uh, taking more time and telling myself that with more time and with more training, um, that I would be able to get back to, um, to the level I had been at before, um, and then even faster. Um, And so it was really just um, yeah, having the time to, to continue to put in the work and, and to continue to get stronger. Um, and then it kind of all came together in, in December. Fantastic. And how do you have any future goals that you would like to achieve now that you've dipped into the sub 240? What's, what's your next goal, if any? Um, yeah, so my goal for at the beginning of the season was I wanted to try to get under 237, which is the A standard, uh, for the Olympic trials. Um, there's a distinction between A and B standards, which actually is kind of confusing and doesn't really matter for, um, for Atlanta. But in the past, it's the A standard has um, – people with the A standard have gotten free uh, travel to the Olympic trials. Um, this year, Atlanta – or in 2020, Atlanta is going to pay for everybody and kind of put everyone on the equal playing field. So that's really awesome. But It is awesome. But because of them, like, putting out this time of 237, it was, like, the natural next – what do I want to do next? I want to get 237. That's the next kind of big time that means something, even if it kind of doesn't mean much. Um, but anyway, I, I, after this training cycle is now basically over, I realize I'm not, I'm not there. And um, that's not going to happen in Boston this year, but it's still kind of in my mind, like 
as the next time. And, and basically, I just want to continue to get better. So 237, then, you know, 235, just kind of keep chipping away like I always have. Um, that's the goal. And you're not, we love that. We're listening to you talk about this. You're not beating yourself up. You're not disappointed. You're just matter of fact, it's not there for this cycle, but I'll do it in another. And I want to have a really strong Boston. I think, I mean, I definitely have been upset. (laughs) Really? Um, Okay. Well, talk to us about that a little bit because. Yeah. I mean, I always want to PR. I always want to get better. Um, and I think a couple of weeks ago, it kind of, eventually you know as the season progressed I kept thinking okay it's all going to come together at the end it's all going to come together at the end and a few weeks ago it was like oof we're at the end and it has not come together and there were moments where I was like this sucks like why am I doing all this work and putting in all this mileage and you know asking so much of my family to just run the same time or slower than I did at CIM um, and that's was it's not easy for me to kind of come to that because I do always want to keep getting better. Um, but now, you know, the race is like closer and it's just the reality that the, the, of where I am. And so now it's like, well, what can I do on the day in Boston that I'm going to be proud of? Um, and so I'm kind of coming around to that and realizing, okay, like 237 is still going to be a goal for another day. That sounds like a great goal. And it also, I mean, listening to your story, progress isn't linear mm-hmm. and you're, you're doing a you're a fantastic role model for people in looking at your time. So one thing you will undoubtedly accomplish if you run slower than CIM is showing that it is completely okay to go from one PR running a bit slower, not that it's slow, and then going down again and showing everyone that progress is linear. And Mm -hmm. we'll give you a challenge for Boston if you want. As coaches, we'll give you the challenge that um, you can run a really amazing negative split on race day because that's the best way to run Boston, as you know. Yep, that's my goal. That's my main goal. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, talk to us about Boston. And because you've run the race before and because you are clearly a terrific marathoner, we have a lot of listeners who will be running Boston and they're in taper now. Tell us what you think they should be focusing on in the last week leading up to Boston. Yeah. Um, so obviously at this point, it's all just about rest and just kind of getting, um, you know, physically you're, you're totally ready. So it's just kind of getting mentally ready. Um, one of the things that I think I've um, stolen from um, Lauren Fleshman and Dina Castor and various um, from Lauren Fleshman's uh, journal. Yes. And um, believe. Yes. From her, her journal believe. And also from a podcast interview I heard with, Dina Castor, they both have this idea of coming up with, say, three things, three reasons why you are capable of achieving whatever you want to do on, on race day. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that I've done the last couple cycles. And really what it is is just in the last couple of days before the race, you know, there's a lot of doubt that comes in and you start thinking, well, I want to run this, but, oh, I don't know, that workout went bad or whatever. And so it's just coming up with three reasons that you can. And every time you keep thinking, you know, these doubts come in, this is why I can't. You say, nope, here are the three reasons I can. And Lauren Fleshman's advice is to, to write them down and repeat them every day, um, a couple times a day, out loud if you can and aren't embarrassed to do it. Um, and then even if you sort of start, you know, even if, even if you, when you initially come up with these three reasons, you kind of don't believe them and the doubts are still there ready to say, oh, but, you know, if you just keep repeating it every day as often as you can, like you'll start to believe it. Um, which sounds crazy, but I mean, this has happened to me where I'm like, oh yeah, I can, 
you just have to tell yourself enough time. So in the last couple of days before the race, you know, come up with these reasons that you can, the work that you've done, the best workout you can possibly remember, um, you know, whatever it is. And um, just really focus on those. And every time the doubts come in, bring back those three reasons you can. Love it. We love that. It really speaks to the mental aspects. Most, most runners now who are trained for Boston are, have, done the, have done the training. They right. put in the physical part. So now it's really working on that mental part during taper. So, so we love that. What about any specific strategies for Boston, the Boston course itself that you adhere to? Um, yeah, well, like you said, uh, negative splitting is always a good idea. Um, I think, you know, just don't go too crazy in those first miles. I mean, this speaks to the, the negative splitting thing. It's so exciting to be in Boston, especially if you haven't been there before. I mean, I think it's the most exciting start in, in all of marathoning. And so you really have to kind of rein in that, in that emotion and um, not go out too crazy fast, especially. And it's downhill too. It's downhill. <laughs> so that's, it's easy you know, to do that. There's so many, there's so many things that are sort of conspiring to make you go too fast at the start. Um, but really try to hold back, really just try to enjoy those early miles and take it slow. Um, and then, you know, when the hills come, just know that you've put in the training. Um, I know I heard this, it's kind of maybe cliche, but I've heard it um, a long time ago, just about marathons in general. Like you take the first 10 miles with your head. And so you, you know, you start slow, you're smart. You take the next 10 miles with your legs. And I think this is especially true for, for Boston. Maybe we'll call it 11 miles up to the top of heartbreak. Um, just know that your legs are ready. Like you're, you're probably going to start getting tired in those middle miles. You're going to start thinking, gosh, there's still a long way to go. But know that you've done the training and your legs can handle it through, through 20, 21 miles. And then the last 10K, you know, it's all about your heart and Boston. Oh, man. <laughs> Crazy mm-hmm, that last 10K. So true. You don't even need, like, I don't even need to tell you to take it with your heart. You will when you, when you hit those crowds. So um, I think that advice is, is even more true for Boston than, than other marathons. Absolutely. And we think this is a great note to end on, TL. We um, love your tremendous uh, story and your honesty today on our podcast. And we know that our listeners will be so inspired by everything you've talked about today. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. And we wish you a wonderful time in Boston and a big old negative split on that race course. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Teal. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. That was really great. I think those are definitely two women to watch and Got a lot of really great nuggets of inspiration and wisdom from both of them. Absolutely. It was really fun to hear both of their stories. And they're very different runners, but they're both super motivating. I really liked um, what Teal had to say. I just, her trajectory is so interesting because she, it's not linear as we talked about. And she, well, it's taken a long time. Yeah. So it wasn't immediate. It wasn't like she came into it with a natural ability to do this and just hit that those times right away. She really, she said chiseled away at her time so yeah that's that was really neat um yeah and I think we both really relate to Karen um being masters runners busy moms working moms and uh her her outlook and everything and how she uh how she sees her training and racing I thought that was really relatable to me yeah I thought it was really cool how she really just discovered how speed work and moderating your paces can make a huge difference and having a coach having a coach <laughs> uh we love that little plug <laughs> Um, but she was terrific and, um, we really hope to meet both of them in Boston. So that was really fun. Speaking of which next time I think we'll be in Boston. Gosh, I don't know. 
Yeah, we'll see. In we'll the see. Next couple of yeah. podcasts, we're going to be up in Boston. Yeah. Only a few more left. So. Yeah. And uh, we're going to do a meetup in Boston, and in our next podcast, we'll talk about that okay. as well. All right. We'll hit that then before we get up to Boston. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye.